Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You're being raised in a world where they don't believe there is such thing as truth. And so the only way they can know how to live is to go onto social media every day and find out what am I allowed to say? What am I not allowed to say? Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast. I am so excited about my guest today. I'm going to introduce you to John Cooper of the band Skillet. Now, John made headlines last year with a viral Facebook post responding to some of the deconstruction stories that we're seeing among Christian celebrities. And I knew back then, I've got to get him on the podcast. And so, John, it is so great to have you on. Welcome. I'd love for you to tell our viewers and our listeners just a little bit about your story. We know that you're this famous rock star, multi-platinum selling artist. Skillet has been so popular. Uh, but what's your story as growing up? Did you grow up in the church or what was that like for you? Sure, sure. Well, it's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me on. And uh, for, for people listening, they might not have ever known that we did shows together. Yes. But we did shows together, did. baby. That's it right. Was about 5,000 years ago. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I have to just pop in and say this, you know, we we did a lot of those summer ones together, like the Shout yeah. Fest and things like that, where it was like all hard rock bands and then little Zoe Girl doing our, our yeah. teen pop. And so sometimes we felt out of place, you know, sometimes it felt like we were performing to an audience that was politely tolerating us while they're waiting to get their skillet on or their, you know, audio adrenaline or something. <laughs> but I just remember how, in, this is so vivid in in my mind, just how absolutely kind you and Corey, your wife, were, and your whole band. I mean, I just, my memory of Skillet oh. was that you guys would go out of your way to be warm and welcoming to us in an environment that w- wasn't probably our natural, you know, habitat. And so I wanted oh, to, that's so to make sure I said that. Yeah, wow, I always that's, remember uh, that. So, I'm so glad. Because yeah. usually people say that that I'm nice, but Corey's mean. Ah. <laughs> I'm joking, man. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm just messing. Corey's anyway. She's over there. I'm yeah. joking. But that's so nice to hear. Oh, well, uh, good to be with you. And I, I would say, let's see, short version of my testimony. Um, and I like to start with this because I assume that people out there watching are parents. There's a lot of parents. I'm a parent. I have two teenagers. And I want people to know how much it matters that parents teach their kids about Christ Mm. because my mom was a Jesus fanatic. All right. (laughs) My mom, I mean, relentlessly taught me about the Bible. I do not remember life before the Bible. I mean, um, you know, in church and before school and it's actually before my brother went to school, even when I was two or three years old, I remember having to sit there at the table while my mom would read the Bible to my older brother and he would go off to school and I'd stay home and whatever. So uh, my mom was a Jesus fanatic, loved the Bible, loved the word of God. And I gave my life to Christ when I was five. And 
I am just so blessed by God. I, I don't have the, the falling away testimony or the, uh, you know, a lot of people that gave their life to Christ when they were young, they kind of go through that, the backsliding time mm-hmm. or the questioning time, or they, you know, they get baptized again when they're 15, when they, when they give their life to Christ again or whatever. My testimony wasn't like that. I just gave my life to Christ when I was a kid. And it's not that I didn't struggle. It's not that I hadn't had, you know, hard things in my life. But I just always believed that the Bible was true, believed that God was real. I started talking to God when I was five. And and he he just always been faithful to me. So um, I think that, that, that what has led me to being so outspoken about more in today's philosophies and, and things of the week has been the shock of the last decade mm. about the lack of people speaking up. And, and namely, in other words, when you're in a Christian band, what, what most people think is I, I want to make art for Christ. I want to glorify Christ. Maybe we write worship songs or we write songs that people could worship to and it can encourage their faith or for evangelism. But we don't see ourselves as like Ephesians four pastors, right? Mm, you know, right. We're we're not like elders typically. And all of a sudden, when you look in 2010, 2012, 13, 14, I'm like, where like where are the voices of the pastors? Why aren't they coming out against the insane ideologies that we're hearing mm. in politics, on social media, the thinkers, intelligentsia? And now the pastors are saying the weirdest stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I just, that's what happened to me is I was like, okay, what's going on in Christianity? Yeah. Why are so many people falling away from their faith? And and they have a nice word for it, which is called deconstruction. Yeah. Why are they nicely falling away from their faith? What's the deal, man? Yeah. Well, and that's when you kind of came back on my radar was about a year ago. We were seeing deconstruction story after deconstruction story after deconstruction story, mostly from really highly platformed, what you might call celebrity Christians, most of them even being from the CCM music world or the worship world. And it honestly, John, I don't know how it felt for you, but it just felt like gut punch after gut punch after gut punch for me, especially because I had had just years, a few years before that, gone through my own time of, of doubt and even deconstruction, although I didn't, um, I didn't want that to happen. It was just, it, it's, some, it's just a story God wrote into my life to uh, bring me through that and show His faithfulness and His goodness through all of that. Mm. Um, but I, I just remember opening Facebook and starting to see this post everywhere. And it was so no-nonsense. I mean, it was straight fire. And and I want to like reference some of this post because this is when you came back on my radar and I saw, oh, it's John Cooper from Skillet. And I was like, my people! I was so excited <laughs> because I'm so in the apologetics world. You know, it's like all these kind of like academic types and all of this. And then here comes John Cooper saying, what everybody's thinking, what they wish they could articulate. And then I'm seeing major apologists share your post. And it went, I mean, it got shared pretty widely from what I understand. Mm. Um, but but I just, you, you were saying, what is happening in Christianity? And you were commenting on these deconstruction stories, and you made so many good points. And I, I wonder if we could just unpack even a little bit about uh, that post a little bit, because you, you were saying, one of the main points you made is we have to stop making worship leaders and 
and thought leaders or influencers and like the cool people, the relevant people. Uh, we have to stop making those kind of people the most influential people in Christendom. And you're saying even me, don't 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 <laughs> yes. put me on that pedestal either. Can can you unpack that a little bit? <laughs> yes, definitely don't put me on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I kind of agree with you. you. You kind of alluded to something. It was like gut punches, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. You're like, these are people that some of them I, I, I don't know, but I've been influenced by, right? Like, like Joshua Harris. I never mm -hmm. met Joshua Harris, but I actually thought, and I know this is controversial, nobody get mad at me, but I kind of like the I Kiss Dating Goodbye thing because at, at the, when that book came out, I mean, I had everybody I knew, their lives had been destroyed already mm. by starting serious romantic relationships at age 10. Like you're not going to get married at age 10, but people were like, I'm going to be with you for the rest of my life. And everybody ends up getting hurt. I, I kind of liked I Kiss Dating Goodbye because I thought, hey, putting dating away and focusing on Christ could be a really good thing. So it's not like I knew him, but you began to see lots of these posts and they were like gut punches and they made me sad. And, and, and also I had people that were not famous, but friends of mine, okay, that had been in church for decades, getting divorced, cheating on their spouses, leaving their spouses. And I mean, like people with kids, just like leaving some of them, leaving the faith altogether. And it was just, it was a painful time. And what was also, it wasn't just painful, but it was also like enigmatic in the fact that when you hear their reasons, they're just dumb reason. They, they, and, and we saw this in some of the famous people's posts and I, and I wrote about it. They would just say something like, like they would come out and they would be like, Hey, I'm, I'm leaving the faith. Um, you're not allowed to ask any real questions. Like how could God possibly let someone go to hell? And, and I'm reading this going like, you've been a Christian for two decades and you've never entertained the question how a good God could also demand justice uh, and like his holiness could demand a punishment for sin. You've never questioned that. And you think that no one questions that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like 600 years of books about that. Go read a book. And it, it, it so then I found it enigmatic. But then it just made me furious, to be honest, mm. because the reason it made me furious is because these people have platforms mm. and they weren't just they weren't just saying, guys, I'm going a different path. I'm sorry. I know I've been I've led you this way. I'm sorry. And I'm going away for a while. No, no, no. They, they can't just do that. They have to say, I'm going a different path. Here's the reason Christianity is dumb. God is, you know, is it really good? Science is real. It disproves God plus LGBTQ plus it's mean plus this blah, 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 blah. And all these people are following them. It, it, that, that's what it was for me. I was like, you are publicly dishonoring the holy name of God. Mm. And you know that scripture that says, it'd be better for you to tie an anchor around mm. your neck and throw yeah. yourself into the sea than to lead little ones astray. It just angered me. I finally mm -hmm. got furious. Like, all right, if you're going to publicly dishonor God, then I'm going to publicly just say, are you really that dumb? You've never considered those questions before you went into ministry 30 years ago. 
that's pretty weird stuff. So anyway, that's not really what you asked me, but that was the impetus for that. I just was yeah. angry. I was hurt. Mm -hmm. I was upset. And I felt shepherding, even though I'm not a pastor, but I felt a shepherding, that shepherding sense of don't lead these little ones astray. Yeah. We have enough deconstruction problems in millennial culture already. Don't start saying dumb stuff, you know? And yeah. so that's why that started. And part of this is, I believe, because of the of the influencer culture. It's the way that an entire generation did never learned how to um, study mm. and never learned to like read. You know, when you read a book, I know this sounds really dumb. Your audience probably thinks I'm the dumbest person in the world. No, but no. <laughs> for people, anybody listening that doesn't know. No, they love <laughs> you. you they book, love you. <laughs> okay. Well, when you read a book, the idea is that the book starts with a premise and then it opens up into an argument and it is it is argue is making a case and then at the end of the book you get a conclusion and then you have to critically think do i agree with this or not mm. but we have a generation of people that never learned to to make a case mm. and never learned to truly understand a thing because they live in bite-sized culture so they can hear a ted a 4 minute ted talk right on any issue in the whole world economics a four-minute TED Talks on why uh, redistribution of wealth is, is a good thing. And they think they understand it. But you can't understand anything in four minutes, mm. right? You, you can't understand a thing. So we have a generation that is, number one, deconstructing to a degree that they don't believe anything they've been told, yet they don't know anything about anything. So it's like, how can you deconstruct something that you don't know enough information about? And mm. And- so I, I kind of view it like this, and I know I'm yakking and yakking, but I view it like this. Anybody that's a parent knows this. You that you if you want to teach your kids something, um, I love woodworking. I'm trying to teach my 15 year old son how to do woodworking, and so anybody that does woodworking knows you make a measurement before you you just start cutting right, and when you do the pencil line down down you know or the chalk. You teach your kid because you've learned that you, you don't cut directly in the middle of the chalk line. You cut to the right of the chalk line. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're going to be short, right? You have to cut big, if you will. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. It's like, it's, like aiming, it's like aiming high, if you will, if you're shooting a gun. So you, you cut to the right of the chalk line. Otherwise, that table's not going to look right. You begin to teach your kid an argument. Well, what we have are kids that never learned why you're supposed to cut to the right of the chalk line, but they're deconstructing it, mm. but they never even learned it. Yeah. But they're like, I don't think, I don't think I need to measure. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I need to, you know? And so that is the reason that I said, don't listen to people like me about eternal truth. I mean, I'm hopefully I'm spreading the gospel. I'm throwing seed, but we need to go back to old wisdom, not what some 20 year old thinks because they're pretty. Yeah. Boy, what a great point. In fact, this is so uh, fun. When we were, we were waiting for you to come on, so I was chatting with your wife, Corey, a little bit, and I was talking to her about some book I thought that I had seen her a picture of her reading <laughs> online. She's like, no, I don't think so. I, she goes, I, I pretty much just read the old old guys like Chesterton and Spurgeon. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, that is awesome. Those, that's the good stuff. You got to read the—I think I heard you say on uh, some podcast somewhere, you got to read the old dead guys. 
you, you yeah, gotta yeah. know that stuff, right? I love it. All those old, all the old patriarchy. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in there. There though. is. I mean, yeah. And because yeah. what I think what can happen if you don't do that, if you don't understand what came before you, if you're not studying history and looking at the past, you can end up recycling ideas and not even realize you're doing it. And this is one point you made in this particular Facebook post. And we're gonna get on, talk about your book. We're gonna talk about woke pastors. We're gonna talk about all of it today. But uh, I love that when I was reading this post for the first time, I just remember reading this line and going, that's it right there, where you said about all of these deconstruction stories, you said they always end their statements with their new insight, new truth that is basically a regurgitation of Jesus' words. It's truly bizarre and ironic. <laughs> and this is so true. This is what, and then they make a platform out of it be good, be kind, yeah. do all this good stuff. Yeah. They'll say, I'm disavowing my faith, but remember, love people, be generous, forgive others. You know, but, and so essentially the point you're making here too, as you go on, is they're getting that from, they're borrowing that from the Christian worldview, but they don't actually have justification <laughs> to say that we should be doing those things because they've removed the foundation from which they would be able to justify even saying what's right or wrong. And I, th I thought that was such a, an, a great point, but I think, you know, when you said the emotions you were feeling when you were writing this post, it, the thing that just kept coming to my mind is it was like righteous indignation. I think that you did stand up to save a lot of people that were really confused by some of these posts. And so, uh, so this has sort of led you on a journey over the past, I guess, year. It's been a whirlwind year, it seems like, for you to where you're coming out with a new book, or by the time this airs, your new book will be out. So tell us about your book. It's called Awaken Alive to Truth, Finding Truth in a Relativistic World. So why did you decide to write this book, and what's your hope to accomplish in, in communicating to to people who read it. Right. Um, well, my hope <laughs> is to make, um, what do you want to say this? To make people aware that there is truth that never changes. And isn't that, isn't that great news? I mean, I know that sounds really dumb, but look at, look at the world. I mean, look at, look at a world in which we don't know we don't know what to believe. We don't. I've heard people say that you know, masks work. I've heard people say that masks don't work. We got to close schools. Don't close the school. Every every single issue in our life right now is debatable on absolute absolute moral grounds, and no one knows what to do. And mm. if you're a young person, you're being raised in a world where they don't believe there is such thing as truth, and so the only way they can know how to live is to go onto social media every day and find out. What am I allowed to say? What am I not allowed to say? Right. What is moral? What makes me a good person? I want to be virtuous. In fact, half of what they have to do is not just in how they they show their virtue, is you know, virtue signaling or whatever you want to call it, but part of virtue signaling is that you have to disassociate from anybody that is now deemed bad, mm. even if they weren't bad yesterday, but now they're bad, you know, and and now you got to disassociate so that you can virtue signal the, these kids. There's no, there's, there's no, uh, it's no surprise that suicide rates are skyrocketing. Mm. Anxiety rates are skyrocketing. They're completely nihilistic. They have no, they have nothing to live for. And I wanted to write this book to say, that's because your life is not built upon a foundation uh, th that is unshakable. 
There's only one foundation that's unshakable, and that is the unchanging word of words of God. Doesn't that sound so good right now? And so that's kind of the, the point of the book is that there, there's two ways you can try to find truth in 2020. One is it leads to life, and that's trusting in that, that there is something outside of myself that will never change. And I, I can put my faith in it. I can put my hope in it, and you can take it to the bank. Mm. Science is going to change, right? You remember that time when the World Health Organization told us that coronavirus would not be transmissible human to human? Uh, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. How'd that work out? Science is going to change. Uh, your friends are going to change. What celebrities tell you to do is going to change. But the word of God will never change. It's so wonderful. Or you can try to go a different route. And that is going, okay, inside my own heart. What, can I? Can my inner guide lead me to truth? Can my feelings lead me to truth? Is what I is my can my deconstruction? And if I take in all the various philosophies of the world, I listen to five thousand different voices, and I'll know which one is true in my own heart because I'm a good person. Mm. And that path will lead you to death every single time. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. And uh, I got to read a bit of the beginning of your book in time for this interview, and I was so. Uh, struck by and impressed by the opening when you recount this situation when you're it's pre-show there's a lot of record executives there high power people and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened in that opening scene because i think what what i read in that is something that seems to be so missing from our culture right now where people would actually think for themselves and choose god over the world or choose righteousness over sin or um, be willing to pay a price for truth so tell tell us that story that you open your book with because I, I i found that so encouraging oh cool. well thank you so much i think you're the first person i know that's that's read that i, I like 500 interviews and nobody's <laughs> asked about it yet. So I don't know. I'm so, so thrilled. All right. So it's the prologue of the book and I call it pre-show because I'm clever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, so it's a story. I think it was probably 2011. We had just had a record come out. Now let me rewind. Actually 96 is when my first album came out. So for anybody that knows how, the entertainment business works. You have your best shot at getting famous or having a hit song or being popular when you're younger. Mm -hmm. Let's just admit it, right? right? You know, young people buy music. You you know, you look younger, you're prettier, you're better looking, you understand culture more. Well, my first record came out in 96 and I did not have a radio hit until 2010, all mm. right? So I'm 35 years old and which is quite old for the entertainment industry. And at that point, all of a sudden we got asked to go on these big tours and we were starting to sell a lot of records. And I was like, wow, this is so crazy. And there's almost no Christian rock bands in the mainstream secular rock world. And this is cool. So we were on tour with secular bands. And after the show, they said, hey, we're all going bowling tonight. It was a really big show. And as you said, we go to the bowling alley and there's all the kingmakers are there, like all the people that you know. They have no idea whose skill it is. They don't know my name. They don't care about me. We were just an opening band. Well, all of a sudden, somebody says, hey, John. And I turn around, and, it, and it's the, the agent and the promoter for the show. I didn't know they even knew who I was. And they pulled me aside, and they said, John, we want to tell you the truth because no one else is going to say it. You guys could – this is literally what he said to me. You could be 
the next biggest band in the world. You just need to strike. And I, and I was like, oh my gosh, the biggest band in the world. I was like, wow, thanks. He's like, I'm telling you guys, uh, I, I'm not bragging on myself. This are the words he said. He said, you guys, you've got the look. Um, you've got girls in your band. And, and as, as you know, um, rock music didn't like girls very much. Yeah. Rock music was a man's world. And Skillet was on the very front end of that. Well, in 2010 was like girl power. Mm -hmm. And so it was cool to have girls in your band. Also in 2010, he said, hey, plus you guys have this spiritual thing going on. That's what he said. It's a spiritual thing. And people are really beginning to like spiritualism. And there's a bunch of bands trying to fake spiritualism, but you guys actually have it. This could be your moment. And I said, thank you so much. And he goes, do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> and I said, uh, I think. And he goes, all right, John, let me just come out and just say it like it is. You could be the biggest band in the world if you would just stop talking about Jesus. Wow. Dissociate from Christian music. Don't do Christian interviews. Don't say that you were ever involved in Christian music. Don't play Christian music festivals. Stop talking about Jesus. People don't take it seriously. And, uh, and I was like, wow, he really came out and said it. But then he did something that I think is really interesting and really poignant to our conversation at hand. He said, John, if you think about it, you could get your message out a lot more if you would stop talking about Jesus oh. and you just became, if you just talked about the social aspect of Christianity. Yes. And he actually said to me, he's like, John, everybody loves Bono. Do the Bono thing. Talk about the poor, feed people in Africa, talk about the oppressed, talk about goodness and light. And he said, think about how much you could do for your Christian faith in the world if you were to become rich and famous. And this is what's so poignant. It's the reason that I started the book with that, because it's alluding to the relativism of our day. Yeah. And I think had I not been grounded in the word, the truth is, is he's kind of right. You know what I mean? There's a part of that that is actually mm -hmm. true. You could do a lot in the world. And maybe Bono, Bono's done more for world hunger than me and you put together could ever do, right? He's done incredible things. And, and Jesus did have an ethical life that teaches us a bunch of wonderful things. And there was that part of me that is like, is he telling me the truth? But, but, but it didn't sound right. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like mm -hmm. part of it's true, but this doesn't taste right going down. Mm -hmm. that, that's what it was. So I went back to my bus prayed about it, woke up the next morning. And I was like, it makes me so mad how much the devil can make lies sound so much like the truth. Yeah. And so it was a good opening for the, for the book. Well, and one of the reasons I wanted you to tell that story as well is because it leads us into this whole idea of the social gospel. Because I think your story helps connect the dots for people who might be going, why is this so popular? Why is this whole, you know, critical race theory, uh, the, the social justice gospel, why is this so popular right now? And I think that there probably are some well-meaning Christians who, who think like that guy thought. You know, well, I could, I could get this to more people. Uh, you know, the world's going to love you if you're, if you're doing this kind of work and if you're agreeing on those kinds of things. But um, I've noticed 
noticed in your ministry that you have spoken out against uh, Marxism and cultural uh, critical race theory and things like that. And so I'm curious how your world intersected with that and when you started learning about that stuff. And I think... I think that this might lead us into this whole discussion about what you're seeing from platformed pastors right now. That's, that's been kind of disappointing. Mm, wow. <laughs> really disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe I will say it like this because it's, it's all, it, it'll tie everything together. I think I'm going to try not to yak on for 30 minutes. Let's say, let's start this in 2012. 2012 is the first time that I was like, what are people talking about? I, I honestly just thought I must be getting old because people are saying things I've never heard before. They're using, they're using words, but I could tell that those words had a lot of meaning that, that I wasn't getting, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and not just in the world, even in Christianity. And I was like, wait, I've, I've been a Christian for 30 years. So um, it's very strange to hear things that don't sound right in the church now. That is when I, I really set on a mission. I told my wife, I was like, something is happening in the world. And I know that God wants me to read, but I don't know what to read. And so I delved in to, I read everything ever. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, economic philosophy, political philosophy, just philosophy in general, Nietzsche, um, John Calvin, I basically just read everything I could find to try to put this into words. And in, in 2015, I remember shutting a book. I read a fantastic book by an author called Shelby Steele called White Guilt. Uh, and Shelby Steele is a political philosopher or social scientist guy. I don't know if he's religious at all, but he's not known for that. And in that book, White Guilt talks so much about the social justice it, it was really to do with, with racism, really. Mm -hmm. uh, the subtitle of his book, if you've never read White Guilt, it's really good. The subtitle is How Whites and Blacks Together um, Ruined the Hopes mm. of, of uh, the Civil Rights Movement, mm. basically. We, together, we have messed this up. It's a fantastic book. But in that book, he talks about the dissociation, the virtue signaling, and the fact that white people had lost their claim to moral... Uh, virtue because of slavery, because of, you know, all the various things, Jim Crow, yada, yada, yada. They lost their virtue. And because of that deficit, they couldn't, they couldn't stand up for anything moral. And so they have to then disassociate from that to, to do anything that at the time, like the, the Black Panthers and things like that, that's what he's writing about. Anything that they said, even if it didn't seem virtuous, like if it entailed violence, for instance, Shelby Steele is black, by the way, mm -hmm. and he and he was raised in that era. So he's saying some of those things weren't good, but white people didn't have the moral confidence to say that they weren't good, say to disassociate from whiteness and, and this, that and the other. So long story. I closed that book and and I believe he talked about critical race theory in that book. And I looked at my wife and I said, I feel so stupid that it took me three years to figure out what's wrong with culture. We don't believe in truth anymore. Mm. We don't believe there is even such thing as truth. We're not arguing about what is true. We're saying, is there anything that is absolutely right? That is when I got turned on to critical race theory and cultural Marxism and, and all those various things that they just unlock so much to me. And the social justice movement is really a move. It's really a religion. 
Yes. I mean, I, I yeah. think you probably agree. Yeah, I know you agree with that because um, I've seen you talk about that. It's its own religion. And so it you have your own works of service, you know, just like mm-hmm. in, in Christianity, we have works that we tithe. And we, but we do that unto God, not as something to earn us righteousness, but we do that as a fruit of thankfulness to the Lord, right? It's obedience, but it's also the fruits of repentance is I, the money doesn't belong to me. My money belongs to God. So it's wonderful to tithe or at, uh, various other acts of service that we do. Well, the social justice movement has their own religion. And part of that is found in beating people over the head that do not have all of the, the woke stances, all mm-hmm. the right stances. And if you don't, you have to beat those people up. But so everyone knows that you dissociate from them. So I dissociate from them and I say a thing and now I now have claimed back the moral virtue that I had lost because of the color of my skin or the fact that I'm a man or a Christian or what have you. So the social justice movement has become its own religion, but it is so enticing to Christians because as you said earlier, the ethical life of Jesus is the reason that that people began to help want to help the poor. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just like a culture of people going around helping each other 2000 years ago. That was a uniquely, well, a lot of that's actually started in, in the moral law from the old Testament. That was a unique change in history that we began to see, which started in the moral law of God. And so the Christians, we have that thing in us that we do want to be good people. We want to show acts of kindness because the ethical life of Christ and because of the moral law. But if we're not grounded in the word, then then we lose the reason why we do it. Yeah. I mean, if there's anything the law teaches you is that you can, you can do all those good acts of kindness if you want, but you're still going to be riddled with sin unless you come to Christ. Yeah. I, uh, for the longest time, you know, and I, I, you kind of alluded to this in your book, or maybe it was in a podcast that I heard you talk about this. I didn't really want to talk about politics. When I started my apologetics blog, when I, I just wanted to lead people to Jesus, give them good reasons why Christianity is true. And of course, my ministry kind of being focused around this progressive Christianity, trying to to expose that movement so that Christians can see what's wrong with the theology there. Um, recognizing, of course, there's political overtones to evangelicalism and progressive Christianity, but I never wanted to go there. But it's become, just especially even over the last year or two, mm. nearly impossible to separate the two. And so I've I've had this struggle of, well, how much do you actually comment on that cultural aspect of what's happening? And then I noticed on Twitter that you had just finished reading Rod Dreher's book, Live Not by Lies. And mm. I'm currently reading that book, and he's really t- connected a lot of dots for me. And, and I'm just, you know, when you said this social justice is a religion, it's actually not a political stance. It is a religion. And I think his book uh, is what helped me connect the dots with that, is that Christians mm. have to stand up for truth. Uh, you know, and it, this isn't about Republican, Democrat. This is 
about this whole ideal ideological coup that's essentially happening in our culture, and it always comes for the Christians. If we look back through history, and so just to give the the viewers and the listeners a little bit of a teaser, Rod Dreher is going to come on the podcast to talk about that book, and it might even be the next one right after this one. So that'll oh, be a good. a good little little uh, brother series right there. Um, but but I wanted to ask you because I know you're <clears throat> seeing this. So many people are seeing it. They're having trouble articulating it. Why do you think that we're seeing so many platformed pastors who otherwise are orthodox in their theology? They're they're not mm. denying the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. They're affirming the Bible as the inerrant, inspired, authoritative Word of God. They're affirming the the sinfulness of man, our need for a Savior, the second coming of Jesus, all the all that core stuff. And yet, they seem to be making a lot of statements online that go along with this, you know, whatever you want to call it, woke narrative or critical race theory. Uh, why do you think that is? And, and what's your observations as you see some of that stuff happening? You're absolutely right. Um, and if you do have Ron Dreher on, you tell him that I loved his book. I will tell I, him. <laughs> I, I, probably probably the, the best book of the year that yeah. I've read. Um and, and, and I read a lot. <laughs> so, and you've got a book coming uh, out, so. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Mine will definitely be better. No, I'm kidding. No, uh, <laughs> his, his, I was like, wow, it blew me away. You know what? I, I, I'm always struggling with, I want to be very gracious. Yeah. And let me give you, <laughs> let me give you the gracious version. And then let me give you the honest. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll do A and B. <laughs> Let's do A and B. <laughs> No, gracious version. I do think, I do think that a lot of uh, of these of pastors. Well, there's actually multiple questions. A lot of pastors very much want to reach the world for Christ, yeah. And they are trying to find ways that that we can do that. We can say, hey, I think in their minds they're going, okay, I don't dig critical race theory, but I can agree that being white, that I am born. In, into privileges that other people don't have. I, I, I agree with that. I, I'm a man. I'm born with certain advantages that women don't have. I, I don't have a problem agreeing with that. I wouldn't particularly call that white privilege because white privilege actually contains uh, so much semantic overload. Yeah. It means a lot of different things. And some people, the way that some people define privilege white privilege, I'm like, oh, no, I disagree with that. But just saying that, hey, I'm born with certain things. That, uh, in that case, I'm born with things that a lot of other white men don't have because I was born with two, a, a mom and a dad, right? So I think what's happening is that some, some of these pastors are going, well, I can agree with that. And if we can find some points of agreement, then this won't be such an antagonistic relationship. And I think because of that, I guess I would say, I think for good, maybe good motivations, they're not willing to stand up against something that is really wicked and yeah. really evil. I actually believe, I don't want to be hyperbolic. I believe satanic. Yeah. So if I actually believe it's satanic, I believe it puts, it puts itself up against in opposition to the word of God and a, and a biblical worldview. Well, if it puts itself up against a, a biblical worldview in opposition it is by definition satanic. Well, the question would be then, well, why do these pastors want to meet them halfway? Uh, and, and I do think sometimes it's a good thing, but I got to be honest, I'm starting 
I'm starting to get a little cynical. I'm starting to think for a lot of them, it's actually not good motivation. I think the motivation may have started off good, and but now it has come to a place where they just want peace with the world. Mm. They just want peace. And the word of God wages war against ideologies of darkness. I mean, that's like Bible 101 stuff. You cannot have peace with the world and true and teach the truth of Christ. It's an impossibility. And so I think that maybe it started off as a good place. I don't know. But when I see pastors unwilling to say undoubtedly that abortion is sin, that's pretty weird. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty yeah. strange stuff. And so the reason, as you said earlier, that all of a sudden, I don't want to talk about politics. I want to talk about Jesus. But all of a sudden, political issue, it's like, wait a minute, if our pastors aren't going to make a stand on these things, which I don't view as political issues, I, be I believe abortion isn't political. That's right. a biblical issue. That's yeah. its own thing, For sure. right? Yeah. And just as if, just as slavery would be, if we, if we allowed slavery in 2020, imagine that we, that we had a, a group of people um, in, enslaved in 2020 and you were a Christian, you would be like, well, that's not a political issue. That's a biblical issue, right? Mm -hmm. that, that would be an issue of worldview of every single individual is created with inherent value because we're created in his image. So we all would want to stand that and nobody would be like, don't get political yeah. <laughs> when it comes to slavery. Nobody would say that. Well, if you're going to have these pastors that people like myself, I've looked up to for decades if you're going to have them begin to bend on truth, all of a sudden it's going to be people like us and people like lay people, the regular people that sit in a church on Sunday morning that are not elders and not pastors say, if you're not willing to take up your sword, then I'll, I'll have to draw mine. That's mm. what it's going to have to mean. And that's why I think more and more people, I believe, this is what I see. I don't know if it's true or not, but this is what I think I see happening. Maybe you tell me if you recognize this or disagree. I don't know. I feel like there's a little bit of a revolt happening in the lay people in America. Yeah, I keep seeing things online that people are starting to hold pastors accountable. Like, what are you talking about? Because a year ago, I wouldn't have had the guts to stand up against some of these people because yeah. they're so, they're so much smarter than me. Right. But, I, but I'm, I'm like, but you're not saying what you said 10 years ago. I'm saying what you said 10 yeah. years ago. Why are you not saying it anymore? I think there might be a revolt happening. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm going to read a, a little quote here from a recent Facebook post that you put up called Make Pastors Uncool Again. And um, again, this is just fire. This is straight fire. You say, you're, you're talking to these pastors and you say, stop finding clever ways to evade questions. You know the ones, God's commands about sexual morality, God's authority structure in the church and at home, biblical justice instead of the religion of modern social justice. Answer them, answer them clearly for heaven's sakes. And stop trying to find new ways to explain the perceived inconvenient truths of God's word. You ought to love what he loves and hate what he hates. This used to be a prerequisite for church leadership. Today, it is deemed radical and even bigoted. Playtime is over. 
The spiritual battle is raging, and the field, uh, the field is full of wimps and boys who have never picked up a sword because it just feels mean. We need generals and leaders who don't care about their brand, their look, their likes, or making allegiances with the world. In short, let's. it's time to make pastors uncool again. And I have no doubt that that was... Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was the stronger version. You gave the gracious version first. <laughs> no, I love it though. I love it because you know what, John, this is, con- I know this is going to be convicting to pastors who read that. That's convicting to me, you know? And I, and, and I think that this is, this is what we all need to keep in mind as we have podcasts and as we, as lay people, uh, you know, I'm not an academic. I've read a lot of books like you, but I'm, I'm not an academic. I don't have a college degree, anything like that, but it's time for all of us to, to not be afraid to take out our sword. You know, that's what the Bible is. It's the sword of the Spirit, and and it's the only offensive weapon in the whole armor of God that we read about in Ephesians. And uh, I just, I found that so incredibly inspiring, and I know many other people did too. Um, as we as we kind of close out this portion of our discussion, we're gonna we're gonna talk just a few minutes more for our Patreon supporters. By the way, if you're listening or watching, and you want to re- listen to the end of this uh, interview, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/AlisaChilders and select the bonus content tier uh, to to get extra content from each one of my guests. Uh, so we'll we'll have more of that with John. Uh, but as we close out this section, uh, John, I want to ask you a couple of things first. Um, one of the things that struck me that you talk about in your book is is suffering. And this is one thing Rod Dreher in his book, he talks about Christians are going to have to be willing to suffer. And when I read some of these deconstruction stories, it seems like a lot of them have the, the background of not having a grid for suffering, not having a theological explanation for why really bad things happen or difficult things. And uh, you, even as a young man, experienced death at a young age, uh, uh, the death of your mom, and you talk about that. And um, maybe, you know, you you have, you know, some of the prerequisites that you maybe should have been one of those guys and making an announcement on Twitter saying, I don't believe anymore because this happened and <laughs> I, I can't make sense of God being good. Um, maybe you could comment a little bit about that. Why do you think that wasn't a factor for you? It seems almost that, like it made you stronger in the Lord. Mm. I, I had a fantastic mom. Uh, my mom loved the Bible. My mom was a Jesus fanatic. It, it, like, like, embarrass me going to the grocery stores because she would just like meet random people and tell them about Jesus. And I would be like, oh, here she goes again. (laughs) Evangelism with my mom. I just wanted to pick up some soda and some chips. And my mom's like, excuse me, I'd like to tell you about Jesus Christ. And I'd be like, oh my gosh. My mom loved the Bible. I can't remember ever living (laughs) without my mom reading the Bible to me. I had an older brother. And I remember when he was young, he would, you know, before school, he was five or six years old. My mom would sit both of us down. I mean, I was two, three years old. And, you know, my mom started teaching us the Bible to memorize scripture. And my mom just taught me when she was sick with cancer, she'd say, John, if God doesn't heal me, you cannot be mad at God because everything God, everything he does is good. Everything he does is right. And we know because the Bible says that all things work together for the good of those who love Christ according to his purposes. My mom taught me that as a kid and I just believed it. And so when my mom passed away when I was 14, 
I experienced a, a really hard time. I mean, my mom's death was, was hard enough, but my dad remarried uh, two months after my mom died and me and my dad started an epic battle, <laughs> an epic <laughs> battle of will that when I graduated high school, I moved out the day after I graduated. See ya. Hope to never see you again. Um, I didn't want to invite my dad to my wedding. I, I wanted nothing to do with my dad, to be honest with you. Um, and, but I will say this, which is not part of the story. Me and my dad have a good relationship now. Forgiveness, amazing restoration because of God and how faithful God is. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's what was so hard for me. And that is when I experienced woof, the hardest time in my life. I, I was on my bed one night, 14, uh, um, me and my dad fighting. And I just was like, God, I am just angry. I'm just, plus, I mean, I was becoming a man. You get all these testosterone dumps <laughs> and, and you're, you're, you're vengeful. And sometimes you're wrathful. I mean, let's just say it. You, you're a dude and, and one little thing happens that might not be the biggest deal in the world, but it angers you to a point that's hard to describe. And you sometimes want to physically hurt somebody. One, one night I remember praying, God, Will you please, I hope this isn't too dark for your audience. No, this is great. I, but, no, no. Okay. It's, it's just real. It's real. God, will, will you cause my dad to try to physically hurt me so that I can physically hurt him? Mm. And I actually believed that God was going to do this for me. That's twisted. I know it's twisted. God, will you give me a chance to hurt my father for what he's done to me? And I remember praying one night on my bed and I was like, God, I wrote about this in my book. Um, I know you're my savior. I know you're my Lord, but I need a friend. And can I know you like a friend? And I always get emotional when I talk about this because I, I mean, I had this amazing experience. I, 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 yeah, felt it in my heart. I felt it in my head, whatever it was an audible voice of God. It was in my head, but I just knew in that moment that, that God said, yeah, Yes, I'll, I am a friend to you, but I am also a daddy. And my heart broke that night. And I, God, he changed me so drastically that there's no, there's no way that I can have any life without knowing that the word of God never changes. And that he is a refuge and a strength, a present help in times of trouble, the Bible says. So that grounded me. And if there's anything that's ever been real in my life, it has been, he never changes. People are going to die. I had a, quite a lot of death in my life, actually. But my, one of my best friends died about six months after my mom died. All these things are going to happen. Pandemics are going to happen. <laughs> Fighting with your dad probably is going to happen. With your spouse. Oh, my gosh. I just found out this morning, literally this morning, that one of my friends just got divorced. I, I, I thought they were going to reconcile. They're getting divorced. Christian family with a kid. Life is going to be brutally hard. We know that for a fact. But Jesus is the refuge. Jesus is, is our strength. And that is what has grounded me. And that's why I love telling people about, about Jesus. Because you too can be grounded. If you're listening to this, I don't care how hard your life is. Your life can be grounded in an unshakable foundation. And doesn't that sound good? Sounds good to me. The book is called Awake <laughs> <laughs> Awake and Alive to Truth, Finding Truth in a Relativistic World. John, where can people get the book? How can they connect with you online? 
The only place in the world you can get the book is my website. <laughs> I self-published it. Uh, it's johnlcooper.com. If you want to go straight to the book, you put a slash awake on there. johnlcooper.com slash awake. My podcast is called Cooper Stuff Podcast, and you can get that wherever you listen to podcasts. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here today, John. I loved it. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for watching or listening today. If you found this content helpful, please go on over to iTunes and leave a great review, or you can subscribe and click the bell icon on YouTube to know whenever we release a new video. If you want to find out how you can come alongside the ministry in a more meaningful way, check out patreon.com slash alisachilders.